now we're going to turn to the, if you have a Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 7. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is this stark thing that Jesus says. Um, it is, uh, it's kind of a shocking sermon, if, if you will. It's things that nobody was saying, uh, and, and Jesus was saying it in a way that nobody was saying it. Um, and he ends the sermon with these four warnings, uh, and they're harsh warnings, and they're kind of... If you like Jesus, you probably don't like the warnings. Because uh, Jesus is like, there's two ways. You follow me or you don't. Uh, there's two destinations, heaven or hell. Uh, there's two kinds of, of prophets or preachers. True ones and false ones. There's two kinds of people who follow Jesus. Uh, true followers and false followers. And you have to watch out for one of them. Uh, and, and there's two kinds of foundations. You can build a foundation on Jesus that will stand through crisis. If you weren't here last week, go ahead and listen to last week's sermon and, uh, um, and then think about the tragedy that we're walking through. Uh, but we, we can build on Jesus or we can build on something else and only one of those foundations will stand the test of our faith or stand the storms of life. And when Jesus is speaking to us and we hear these things, it makes us uncomfortable because Jesus is very black and white, right? It's like Jesus is saying you're in or you're out. Uh, Jesus is saying things like you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. This, this is intolerant in our culture, is it not? Right? And I don't mean to preach intolerance. Uh, I just mean to say that it seems like Jesus is. And, and that makes us naturally uncomfortable. That is something that is arresting to us in the way uh, that we live, in the, in the world that we live in. In a, in a pluralistic, multi-religious world that we exist in, it is um, surprising that Jesus would come down and say, it's this or this. What do you choose? Jack, right? And uh, I've been watching too much Duck Dynasty there. But, uh, <laughs> but when, you, when Jesus comes down to it, he's like, you have to choose. And there is a stark difference between the person who follows Jesus and the person who doesn't. So Jesus gives this big sermon. And the Sermon on the Mount probably isn't a word-for-word recording. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you haven't been here before, um, it's probably not like they wrote down every word. Stop, Jesus. You know, we're writing this down or something. Uh, It may have been one sermon he gave all at once. Or it may have been, and then they paraphrased. Or it may have been the teaching that he gave over a couple of days on this this side of this hill or this mountain. and, and, And they were listening to it. But Jesus gives this teaching, and, and he ends with these four warnings. Um, in those warnings, you see, we're shocked by these warnings. When I say that Jesus was religiously intolerant, that's a shocking statement. But in their culture, they wouldn't have been shocked by this. What they would have been shocked by is Jesus repeatedly claimed to have a divine authority. Jesus referred to himself and his words as being on par with the words of Scripture. And if you can imagine, and I know this is hard for you because we are looking back at 2,000 years of history, but imagine that you're there or that Jesus comes to this and you go out to this field and this hillside that Jesus is preaching and you've heard about this guy named Jesus and you've heard he's kind of a good teacher and you've heard he has some interesting things to say. And when you get there, he says, I am God. That'd be shocking, right? Like if this morning I said, point number one, I am divine, Pastor James, right? You'd be shocked. <laughs> you'd also be like, I thought I knew that guy, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, and you would like say, I'm a liar, and you would be correct. Um, but, uh, but, so when Jesus says this, it's not surprising that it's shocking to these people. 
And it's not surprising that they're not shocked by the other things he says. They're shocked by this claim that he has. Because when you start to claim those kinds of things, uh, it, that opens up a whole can of worms. It opens up a whole bunch of questions. Like, how can we prove this? How can we know this? All, all those kinds of things. So Jesus is giving this sermon. And this is the end of the sermon. This is verse 28 and 29. Jesus is done talking. And Jesus has these five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. All right, Discourse means a long speech. And at the end of each discourse, it says the same thing. And when he had finished these sayings. That's how we know there are five discourses. And when Matthew wrote it, he said, hey, and this is the end of Jesus' speech. This is how we know Matthew, who wrote this Gospel, uh, is actually saying that's the end of the speech. Uh, old King James Bible say, and it came to pass when Jesus was done. It was, it's all regal and everything. But when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let me read that again. And when he had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So in the context, Jesus is speaking primarily to his disciples. All right? He's got this group, this large group of, of men who are following him, uh, and he's speaking to them. But there's this crowd who's listening in. And this reaction of the crowd is the focus of these verses today. So Jesus has these disciples, these men who've left everything, left home, left their families, left their job to follow Jesus. And in their culture, that it was just the men who would have done that. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It was the culture that Jesus happened to be born into. Uh, and so then beyond this, there's this crowd listening. And this crowd listening is the reaction that this, these couple of verses focuses on. What does the crowd do when they hear about Jesus? And what they do is compare him to their scribes. Now a scribe, uh, Jesus was what we would call a rabbi. A rabbi got some disciples. A rabbi, in, in their culture, a rabbi would have disciples and he would walk around and he would go community to community and, and he would teach his interpretation of the law uh, or of the Torah to the Jewish people. All right? Today's rabbis tend to stay in one place. If you know much about Orthodox Judaism, they will uh, have like a synagogue and you teach in that synagogue. They don't travel. Uh, there's not as many traveling rabbis. Um, but they had a, a saying in their day for a, it was a blessing that the parents would be really excited. Like, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So you follow him when he's going in the dust of, from his steps because they didn't have paved roads would get all over you. And so the scribes would be a little more localized and they would be the people who would interpret the difficult nuances of the Mosaic Law or of the Torah for the people who are trying to live it out. So if you think about the rabbis were kind of like the, the guys who were publishing and then the scribes were the guys who were explaining what the rabbi said. Does that make sense? So you have like the guy who's saying these highfalutin things, you don't understand it, and then the scribe would explain so that you could do the things and you could live in your world. Now, in the culture that they're speaking, it was widely accepted that the golden age of understanding the law had come and gone. It was past. In the old days, life was better. We can't relate to that, right? <laughs> in the old days, life was better. And so the, in the old days, people understood the Torah. People understood the Bible better. And so many of these scribes wouldn't come up with anything original. 
Because original ideas and original thoughts weren't coming from the golden age. It used to be good. And anything you come up with now is not as good as it used to be. And so when, the, and this doesn't mean they came up with no ideas. They would have new ideas, but it was really rare. And so the scribes were always citing people. They would always say, it's like Rabbi Hillel said. It's like Rabbi Gamaliel said. All right, we would, we would just build on the teachings of those who came before us because that was the golden age. And so when they would go and hear the scribes, they were used to, here's what the Bible says. Here's what some smart people say about it. Let's trust those smart people. That was how sermons went. And Jesus comes in and says, you've heard this interpretation of the Bible, but I'm saying this thing way over here. And I'm not quoting anybody. I'm just saying it's true. That would be shocking for someone to come into. It would be shocking like if you walked into a church and they said, today we're not opening the Bible. I'm just going to tell you what the truth is. That would make me nervous, unless that person was the Son of God, <laughs> which they're not, <laughs> because Jesus wears a robe. So, <laughs> so the crowd, when the Bible says this, the crowd, <laughs> sorry, it says, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Uh, we would use a word like blown away. The crowds were blown away by what Jesus was doing. Like they just couldn't believe what he was doing. And it wasn't they were blown away by what he taught. It's by what he was teaching. And so it wasn't just something that happened. It was something that was happening over and over. Like Jesus is just saying these things and living in such a way that it's just, uh, just it's so shocking to us. It's just blowing us away. And, and so we have this like, uh, um, this amazement or this kind of oh this is, this is really I, I, I'm astonished by this I, I admire this guy Jesus coming out and saying these things and it wasn't that they, they weren't amazed by the cool or the novel things that Jesus was saying and Jesus was saying things he was taking the religious world or the understanding and like flipping it turning it completely upside down but they weren't amazed by that that was like, okay, I can, I, yeah, we're good with that. It was when Jesus started to talk as if he had authority. That was amazing. To have a person talk to them as if they understood the mind of God was, was just outrageous. There was something about that that was attractive to the crowd. When Jesus comes with this authoritative claim to divine kingship, People were attracted to that because they just wanted to believe it. It was exciting to think that the Messiah had come. We just didn't think it would look like this guy. See, the people didn't... When Jesus got in trouble towards the end of his life, the reason that they killed him was because of a claim to royalty. Divine royalty. It wasn't because he said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you this... You've heard it said this, but I say this. It, Jesus never got in trouble for anything he said, for any of his teachings. He got in trouble for claiming to be the divine king, frankly, of the world. That's what gets you crucified. You can say crazy stuff, and nobody cares. And there's a whole, there's a whole list 
Uh, you can read in ancient historical sources of people who would come down, say something crazy, get a big group of people and move to the desert and do crazy things. That's something that's been happening for a long time as well. Right? What's that? We call it the state of Jefferson here, don't we? <laughs> get a group of crazy people, go in the woods, eat mushrooms, right? And this is, <laughs> this is what... This has been happening for a long time. We're not, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We're carrying, Oregon is carrying on this beautiful tradition uh, in history. So when Jesus is bringing this teaching to them, the shocking part is Jesus' confidence. The shocking part is Jesus' apparent claim to be, have His words be the divine words of God. And so the crowd reacts to this with amazement, with astonishment. The crowd admires Jesus. The crowd would say, we like Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to this? When Jesus is finished, this is uh, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great clouds followed him. This is of chapter 8. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. And then Jesus begins healing them. And then in verse number 5, he goes to Capernaum. Crowds of people are worshiping and adoring Jesus. And you know what he does? Walks away. He goes to the next town. He's like, that's nice. Uh, that's cute what you're doing, how you kind of think I'm a cool guy. That's not at all what I'm interested in. You want something shocking, how about this? Jesus has no interest in you liking him. And, and that's apparent by the way that Jesus is talking. We have this thing where we talk about salvation and we talk about uh, accepting Jesus into your heart. Like we're going to accept Jesus, right? Like as if Jesus has this friend problem, right? <laughs> and so we're going to accept him because he's a bit of a loser. But the reality is Jesus has no interest in you liking him. How's that for shocking? Jesus says, oh, you like me, see ya. And he walks away. Because Jesus carries the privilege and carries the authority and carries the right to define your relationship with him. And Jesus defines your relationship with him as wanting your whole life and nothing less. Jesus is not interested in anything you have to offer him short of your whole life. Short of complete submission, of complete trust, of complete following. You might be here today and you're like, I really, I like going to church because I like that Jesus guy. And Jesus has absolutely no interest in what you're saying. Because you're trying to define your relationship with God and you don't have the right to define your relationship with God because you're not God. How's that for shocking? Because we just want to say, you know, I want to hear what you have to say. Like the crowds are following Jesus because they want to hear more from Jesus. And if you're here, some of you are here maybe for the second time or the third time, you want to hear more about Jesus. That's alright. Like if you want to hear more from me as I'm explaining Jesus, that's alright. But if Jesus speaks to you and you dang know it if he does and you say, I'd like to hear more from you, Jesus. Like I'd like you to elaborate on that. I'd like to define how much you need to interact with my life in order for me to listen to you. Jesus says, nope. What you're actually doing is trying to destroy your relationship with Jesus. Jesus is reaching out to you. And if you try to control your relationship with Jesus, you're eliminating your relationship with Jesus. You don't get to decide what your interaction with God looks like. 
How's that? Want to follow Jesus now? You give up all of your rights. Like, I want to follow Jesus, but I really don't want him to, you know, make me be nice to those people. Don't follow Jesus. Jesus is leaving. He's going to Capernaum. I want to follow Jesus, but if he puts like a weird calling on my life and makes me go to Umbubatu and be a missionary, I don't like bugs. So I'm probably not going to do that. You might as well stop following Jesus now because you've put a boundary on your life. You've refused to give up your whole life. You say, you know, I really want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to follow what the scripture teaches me about how I handle my stuff and how I handle my money. Well, you put a boundary on there. I would encourage you to not follow Jesus. A lot of people are picking like really, I call them crappy ways to get to hell. Because you live this kind of half Christianity where you think you're suffering enough that Jesus is going to give you a gold star. And you get to the end and Jesus says, you don't even like me. And you're like, no, I like you, Jesus. And you're, well, why didn't you listen to me? Oh, oh, oh. Hell, right? <laughs> and this is... That's probably what Jesus sounds like, right? But, and that's not all theologically correct, you know, but... Um, <laughs> When I look at people who are halfway in with Jesus, halfway in, like I want to be committed to Jesus, but I don't want to be like too committed. I don't want to be a disciple. I don't want to actually follow his life and follow his teachings. I just kind of want to watch it. I want to go to church. I don't want to like get involved. I don't want to like serve other people. That's kind of outside of my boundary, you know. I just kind of want to watch Jesus. Jesus' reaction to those people is walking away. That sucks. Because it's so rampant. Because Jesus is such a likable guy. That when we start to see him teaching these things where he's like, it's you're in or you're out. It's the wide road or the narrow road. You have a foundation of Jesus or you have a foundation of something else. That kind of stuff, it makes an unlikable Jesus. Like, it, it makes us struggle because we want to like Jesus. We want him to be our buddy. And Jesus says, I will be your friend, but I am also your God. His claim to divine kingship is shocking to us. If you're a Christian... The Bible teaches us that our citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship doesn't belong to a physical country on earth. Our passport may have the, a physical country on earth on it. But our citizenship belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And the king of the kingdom of heaven is Jesus. And you don't get to be partly loyal to your king. Partly loyal means treason. There is no part loyal. It's just like there's no part patriotism. You're either loyal or you ain't. You don't get to be like, I'm loyal on these things, but not on these things over here. And so, when we try to follow Jesus, if we don't recognize him for who he claims to be himself, we fail to be able to follow Jesus. Now, when Jesus demands our whole lives... That's a steep demand, is it not? 
That's a harsh thing for Jesus to say. Like, shouldn't I be able to, like, take a little bit and try Jesus out a bit? And then try a little more of Jesus out a bit? And then try a little more? And that's true for a lot of people. Like, maybe you started following Jesus, and then you started following a little more, and then you started, and your this journey of becoming a disciple took a couple of years or a couple of decades. Some people, it's like instant. You know, some people you can see that radical, boom, there's a change. Some people it's really slow. But when that happens, if you are building up the hardness of your own heart, because you know what, Jesus, I hear you calling me to follow you more or follow you deeper, but I'm not going to because I need to define things myself. We use words like, I'm not ready, or that's too much, or I don't want to be a fanatic. Or a Bible thumber. I just want to be, you just want to be a fan of Jesus. I like Jesus. And so I want to follow this much. If he calls you into more and you refuse, you're refusing following Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples, none of them thought about it. That's what qualified them to be disciples. He goes up to guys who are fishermen and says, I think you should leave your nets and follow me. You were fishing for fish, you're going to fish for men now. Nobody understands what that means. Like we do now because it's in history and stuff, but someone comes up to you and says, you've been repairing cars, now I'm going to help you repair men. You're like, what? <laughs> right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he goes, follow me. And you go, all right. Right? <laughs> this is what qualifies the disciples to be disciples. When Jesus says, let's go do this, their answer is, okay. When Jesus speaks to you and he says, let's go do this, the only, the only acceptable answer is, alright, let's see what happens, Jesus. And I'm not speaking about like some fanatical thing like Jesus' voice is going to speak to you, right? Maybe it will. And you know it's Jesus because it'll scare you and you won't want to tell anyone because they'll think you're crazy. That's it's real, right? Well, if you're like me, maybe you're like open about that stuff. I'm not. It's weird. Like, you know the whole speaking in tongues thing? If you've been a Christian or you go to like a Pentecostal church? I don't have a theology of that. I just don't want to do it because it's scary, right? <laughs> that is scary stuff. Um, if you've done that, that's awesome. You're braver than me. I'm not, I'm crazy, but... Um, <laughs> when you decide to follow Jesus... If I decide to follow Jesus, I don't get to put a boundary on where I'll follow Jesus or how I'll follow Jesus or to what degree Jesus gets to interact with my life. If that's what I'm trying to do, then I'm actually trying to not follow Jesus. I'm trying to be a fan of Jesus and have him have this kind of role in my life. I'm going to wear Jesus' jersey on Fridays when he's got a big game, you know, or something happening. On Good Friday, I'm going to root for Jesus because on Sunday he might win, you know. <laughs> Jesus is not interested in that. What that is, is me saying I'm in control of Jesus, not Jesus is in control of me. That's the opposite of what a disciple is. And Jesus doesn't call us to know his teachings. He doesn't call us to really like him. He doesn't call us to think he's a good guy. He calls us to be disciples. When we talk about Jesus... The only options that he gives are you are a disciple or you are not. Some of you are in the process of becoming a disciple 
And if you're in that process, I would encourage you to take the next step because I'm being kind of blunt today. If Jesus is calling you to follow him, if Jesus is calling you to give your life over to him, to let God be the sole source of how you live your life, there is only one acceptable response. When you meet Jesus and you actually hear from him, there's something about him that's actually, there's theologians, they use the word irresistible. Like theologians have written for a couple hundred years, like four or five hundred of them. And they've called God's grace irresistible. Because when Jesus reaches out to you, there's something about it that you just can't refuse. That's how you know that God is speaking to you. And it doesn't come always in some weird voice. Sometimes you'll be reading your scripture. Sometimes we'll be worshiping together. Sometimes you're just alone, praying. And you just feel... When I hear from God, sometimes it's just like a, like an overwhelming conviction that seems to come from somewhere else. It's weird, I guess. But you know when your friend calls you on the phone, back when, before you had caller ID and you knew it was them, just from their voice? You can have that kind of relationship with God. Where you just know it's them. If you have this feeling like of something crazy that's unscriptural, not God. Right? Like if God tells me to become a professional athlete, God wouldn't do that because he can see me. <laughs> he sees me play sports. He sees my actual physical build. <laughs> When we follow Jesus, Jesus gets to be the defining agent in that relationship. And so the crowds are astonished at his teaching, for he's teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And the crowds end up back with the scribes. During Jesus' ministry, what we'd call a ministry career, he was a pastor or a rabbi for three years, wildly unsuccessful. Because he had these huge crowds. And at the end, when they were putting him to death, there was two or three people standing around. Maybe a couple more deeper in the crowd. But he went from crowds, what we would call a megachurch. Like Jesus should have been writing books and streaming his... Like he should have invented the internet so he could stream his services. Because he, was, he had the biggest church in history. Jesus did. And yet he was a failure as a pastor by our standards because he whittled it down to two or three. Because he said stuff like this. It's kind of a funny thing because we were running out of chairs. We'll try to set more up next week. But if we keep telling you what Jesus said, uh, there should be less people next week. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just keep willing. I won't last. <laughs> But if we keep going back to the teachings of Jesus and allowing Jesus to define our relationship with him, Jesus calls that a disciple. And the followers of Jesus who are disciples receive the promise of Jesus. I mean, I, I, you live with... And, and we exchange this broken life of sin for a life of peace and joy and love. A life of, of, of generosity... A life of community in the body of Christ, in his church. So we 
might react and say, I need to hear more. I need to, I know I, I understand what Jesus is saying, but I, I'm not ready. And if you're saying that to my words, that's fine, because I'm not Jesus. But if you're saying that to God, it's not okay. Because you don't get to define your life and its relationship with Jesus, because Jesus demands it. Jesus has that authority to demand your life because he is the Son of God, being God also because of the Trinity, who gave his life up so that you can exchange your broken life of sin for what Jesus calls a full and complete and abundant life. Jesus isn't you know you see some coaches in sports and it looks like they couldn't run half the court or half the field, right? Um, Jesus is not a coach who's standing on the sideline yelling at you what to do. He's the coach who did it. He's the guy who did it perfectly. The Bible actually says Jesus lived life. He's the author of life and the perfecter of life. Like he lived perfectly. And so because of this, and his own dying, Jesus can demand your whole life. He has that authority. And he carries it. Not by some strange, like, he's not citing anybody. He's saying, I'm the Son of God. And here's the relationship that we're going to have. You're going to follow me, or you're not going to follow me. And you might be like my fan. You might stand on the sideline and say, look at that! That's awesome! Look at him! But that's not following me. That's watching. That's putting up a boundary. That's saying, Jesus is good out there, but I really don't want to have to deal with this inner core stuff. Not an acceptable way to follow Jesus. Because... We follow the Jesus who gave of his own life. When Jesus was about 33 years old, he actually died. He was killed on a cross by the earthly authorities, the religious and, and Roman authorities that existed of the day. And he was physically dead. He took on the sin of all mankind and felt the abandonment of God on that cross and they buried his physical body on a Friday afternoon and on a Sunday they would call it three days later because of the way they counted days and on a Sunday they went to see him and he wasn't there and then he surprised them because he was walking around and then they wondered is he a ghost or something and he actually let them touch his hands and touch his side and see that he had actually been beaten, that he had actually been crucified, and actually physically died and risen back to life. This is the great cost that Jesus paid in order to give you this full and abundant life of following him in exchange for your broken life of sin. This is the great exchange. We are the full and total benefit. Like, we get all the benefit out of this deal. We give Jesus our life, which admittedly, 
ain't that good. Right? I mean, you're sitting in a metal and wooden chair. It's not that good. And we exchange this thing for the full life that Jesus offers. If you have never made a commitment to follow Jesus, and you might have been a fan of his for a long time. Like, you might be a member of this church because you're just a fan, but you have boundaries in your life. Because you're hearing me, Jesus is demanding. And he's demanding your full and total commitment. And there's no... Like, Jesus doesn't want to embarrass you. He doesn't... We're not going to make you stand up or admit your sins or something weird. You need to pray to Jesus and say, this is what I've been holding on. This is the line that I've drawn. And I won't cross it. And now I hear you demanding, and so I'm going to cross it. And I don't like what's over there because I don't know what's going to happen. But we know, because Jesus told us, that living where Jesus wants us to live and in the way that Jesus wants us to live is better than our boundary-walled-in life. Every single time. If you're a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus, we celebrate this ritual called, we call it communion. It's been called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, depending on your tradition. Jesus installed this tradition as he began the church. On the night that he was betrayed, uh, Jesus had all the disciples in a room and he actually took bread uh, and he took a, a cup of wine. We just used juice and uh, for cultural reasons that are not, we'll talk about that another day. And he took the bread and he said, this bread uh, represents my body. My body that was broken for you. And when you eat it, you remember my sacrifice. And then he took the, this cup of wine and he said, this wine represents my blood, which is going to be shed for you. Which is very confusing to these people, these disciples of Jesus. And he says, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. What's shocking about Jesus is all these people were living under an old covenant, following rules in order to follow God. And Jesus comes along and says, how about this? How about instead of the rules that reveal your sin, the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood, is not about the rules that reveal your sin. It's about the forgiveness of that sin. It's not about you working harder so that you're acceptable to God. It's about God doing all the work and making you acceptable to himself. It's not about you defining your relationship with God. It's about God defining your relationship with God. And Jesus seals this new covenant. And the disciples went around and they all ate some bread. And they all drank some wine. And for a couple of thousand years, Christians have been doing this. This morning, we're going to participate in communion as a family together. So we don't do this just for Grove members. If you're here today and your claim in your, in your relationship with God is defined by God and you're a follower of Jesus, you can participate in communion. If you're not, we'd ask you not to. Not because of something we think or something like that, but because of what the Bible teaches. Because we believe someday you might step across that line. And when you do, Entering into the rituals that Jesus established on this earth will be an incredibly beautiful thing for you. 
But there's no, we're not going to check. If you are playing a follower of Jesus to the point where you need to convince the people around you because you need to convince yourself, we're not going to be able to stop you because we don't know your heart. But I want to encourage you. We're gonna, we have a table, and we have two tables in the back too. And we want to give you a chance to examine your own life and examine your own heart and say, is there something between me and God? And it would be an appropriate thing uh, to seek forgiveness, to follow Jesus in repentance of those things this morning. And then we'll participate in communion together. So I'll pray for us, and we'll stand, and or we'll have the worship team sing a couple of songs, and then you can come up and, or go back and, uh, and get a piece of bread and get a little cup of juice and return to your seat, and you can eat it and drink it on your own time. We don't really form a line either because we do this together. If somebody stops in front of you, walk around them. <laughs> it's more like Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner where you just go and get it. And if you don't, there won't be any left. And there's so many people here, that's kind of true. <laughs> but we really, <laughs> we really see this as a, as a thing that we do together. And you're going to be taking communion around this table with people who've been following Jesus as long as you've been alive. For real, as long as, as, long as you've been alive. You're going to be taking communion around this table with people who are going to decide to follow Jesus in about three or four seconds. You're going to be taking communion with people who this week have been forgiven for sins that they would be so ashamed to admit to you. And people who, are, who haven't willfully sinned in a long time, who make mistakes, but are, have this tight, close relationship with God. We all live in the same covenant and so we all share in the same communion table because we are together in Jesus because that is how Jesus decided to define it so we don't get to put our own regulations on communion we live under the covenant established by the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior